Would it be helpful to know that he does a Rowan Atkinson's hair? <laughs> 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 I don't want to look like Rowan Atkinson. Hi and welcome to Walking the Dog. This week I went out with comedian, writer and all-round renaissance man David Baddiel. David's been a bit of a hardcore cat man all his life, but he was really keen to have a blind date with a dog. So we took out the lovely Jimmy, who's a greyhound from Dogs Trust, and I think it went pretty well. One of the things I love about David is his absolute inability to keep anything back at all. So we talked about everything, fame, Frank Skinner, family. He takes a call from his brother at one point. There's a bit where he stops the podcast and deliberates whether to go to the loo in a bush. And best of all, he even let me stroke his guinea pig. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, You must go and see David's show, by the way, My Family, Not the Sitcom. That's not a plug. It's a genuine piece of advice from me because it's life-changing. And it's your last chance, I think, this tour. So go to davidbadil.com for dates. Also, his latest kids book, Birthday Boy, is out right now. So that's all your Badil-based info for 2018. Also, I should say, if you want to contact Dogs Trust about rehoming a dog, do get in touch with them. They're at dogstrust.org.uk. My last piece of advice is rate, review and subscribe because there's no easy way of saying this without sounding cheesy, but you complete me. Yes, all of you, even you with the bootcut jeans. Hi, David. (laughs) I should introduce the podcast. Yeah, okay. So I'm with David Badil, and this is Walking the Dog. Hello. I like your very polite hello, like you're on the one show. Yeah, well, (laughs) I always like to start with a one show, you know, element. Rob Newman, who I used to work with, someone once said about him that he was very good at the start and end of conversations because he was so liable to say something terrible in the middle <laughs> when he sort of lost himself, that he would self-consciously say something positive at the start and end as a kind of barrier, you know, a buffer <laughs> for that. And I think I've got a bit of that. We're doing this podcast today, and at the moment, we should say... We're dogless at the moment. We don't have a dog. It's just you and me and some Parkers. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have a dog in a minute. Though. We're going to have a dog in a minute because a lady from the Dogs Trust is here. Yeah. And they've loaned... When they first called me and I said, I'm doing the podcast with David Baddiel, he doesn't have a dog, but I really yeah. want to do this with him and I want to talk to him about dogs and understand the obsession with cats. Yeah, and also I've spent my whole life thinking, oh, I might get a dog. Oh. And so far not. So the phantom dog is with me at all times. Okay. Well, when they called me, they said, it's a bit of a funny looking thing. Yeah. But we haven't, we have got... A... I think they may have been talking about me. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's not particularly funny looking. He's so. called Jimmy. And is he a greyhound? He is a he's greyhound. He's Irish and he's called Jimmy and he's a greyhound. <laughs> okay. Well... Oh, here he is. Okay. Can we take him now? Is that okay? Hello, Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy. Hello, Jimmy. He's really beautiful. He's not a funny looking thing. I'm going to describe Jimmy. Can I do that? Yeah, please do. Okay, okay. Jimmy, come on. He's oh. having a shave. <laughs> Jimmy doesn't want to come with us. No. He's anti-Semitic. Um, okay. <laughs> Jimmy is white with brown and black patches. He's a greyhound. He's very much what you might expect with a greyhound. I've never seen a greyhound that's anything different shape-wise. Like yes. greyhounds. You might have thought there'd be the odd fat greyhound, is what I'm sort of saying, but there never is. Yeah. No, the body type is quite standard, yeah, isn't it? it yeah. Is. And 
He's got a lovely face, although at the moment it's stuck against a tree. What I've been told about Jimmy is he's four years old. Yeah. Uh, and You're making him sound like a Miss World contest. <laughs> yeah, he's four years old. He wants world peace and to be able to shit near a tree, which is very common amongst Miss Worlds. He, uh, he was found, I think, in a bad way, but then he, they, the Dogs Trust sorted him out. And then they, he was, in fact, housed and then brought back to the Dogs Trust because he didn't get on with the other pets. And that brings us into it straight away. An issue I have with dogs. Go on, so tell me what you So I've always kind of wanted a dog. Yeah. I like animals in general. I sort of like animals. I really like animals. Yeah. As as I go older, I've become more obsessed with animals. I'm thinking about being a vegan. Never won't happen, but I often think about it. I think about the sentience of animals a lot, about how animals, it's clearer and clearer to me, are very, very sentient and very like us. Yeah. So anyway, I thought about getting a dog for many years. But as you... Hello, yeah, please do. Look at you. Gorgeous. I was about to say thank you, but he's not my dog. No, but... He's a beauty. He's from the Dog's Trust. Yeah, he's from the Dog's Trust. He's called Jimmy. Wow, hi, Jimmy. Aren't you lovely? Is he looking for a home? Uh, Yeah, yeah, he is, actually. Are you you interested? No, I've got two dogs already. What a moment it would be if we'd housed Jimmy (laughs) so early on. Well, never mind. <laughs> well, you've done really good PR for him, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's lovely, isn't he? Come on, Jimmy. Yeah, so, uh, but the problem for me with a dog is twofold, but the primary thing is I've always had a lot of cats. Presently yeah. have four cats, and it's perhaps a little bit cliched of me, narratively, to assume the dog and the cats won't get on. Right. But I do worry about it. It's a bit of a sort of a Tom and Jerry it approach is, it to is. life. Yeah, it is. But particularly Monkey, yeah. who is my old cat, who has had to put up with a lot in his life. He was in love with Chairman Meow, who died. We should say that was, another, was a cat. That was a cat, yeah. That was another cat. It was named by Frank Skinner, actually. When you shared a flight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> what actually happened was, Frank didn't like cats didn't want a cat. I had to have a cat because I don't feel comfortable without a cat. Yeah. And he said, okay, we can have a cat if it's named after the cat in True Grit, the John Wayne film. So we have to call it General, some very long name. Yeah. It's a General someone or other, Sterling Anderson or something like that. And that didn't really work once we got the cat. So eventually yeah. we sat and had a comedy brainstorm. And of course, Frank said, looking for a pun, what does the cat do a lot? I said, meow. <laughs> and he instantly said, Chairman Meow. He's and, good, isn't And he? I still think that is a very brilliant name for a cat. Anyway, Chairman Meow, who Monkey was in love with, died. Right. And now we've got three other cats, and Monkey's just dealt with all that. But, you've uh, got Monkey, who I met earlier, who's 20. He's 20, yeah. And you've got Tiger. Pip, who is, ti- yeah. who is the mum yeah. of Tiger and Ron, who are brothers. And yeah. we kept them from nine kittens that Pip had over two litters. And they've all been given to good homes, the other cats. But basically what I'm saying is we've got four cats. And I, I would never not have a lot of cats. I, I don't right. really feel comfortable without a lot of cats around. And do you think that bringing a dog into the proceedings at this stage is a bit like meet your new mom? You know? I don't know, is it? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. I think it depends yeah. on the dog and the cat. But I don't want to get into a situation whereby having been warned by cartoons and comics over many years that these people don't get on. I like that you use cartoons instead of public information films. No, but I haven't watched that many public information films. But what I would say is cartoons are very clear about it. I would hate to think, oh, well, you know, 
if I brought a dog into the house and it didn't come with a cat. It's like, how, who knew that was going to happen? <laughs> oh, God, someone could have told me. <laughs> For some reason, they don't get on at all. Yeah. It's so strange. Now, I understand that. And when you were growing up, David, in North London, did your mum and dad have cats? Uh, yeah, we always had cats. Fomfa was our Sorry? principal cat. Yeah, Fomfa. Yeah, because with the cats, what would happen is my dad would name the cats in a very Badil house way, he wouldn't give the cat an ordinary name. He would give it a sort of Badil language <laughs> name. And my dad, sort of obverse in a weird way of what Frank did, he said, what does the cat do a lot? And then he held the cat up and what the cat was actually doing was purring. Yeah. But my dad, I don't know if he'd never heard of purring. My dad's a cantankerous man. Maybe he didn't understand a, a sound of pleasure and joy. <laughs> he just said, oh, it's going kind of fomfer, fomfer. And that's what that cat was called. Fomfa. We had another cat called oh, Ben Finfling. Brilliant name. Ben Finfling Fomp, which is a kind of Hebrew, that's the daughter, right. son of. It actually <laughs> it sort of is Hebrew for <laughs> son of Fomfa. Jonathan Ross actually is very keen to that's he's keen on Badil family trivia and he will mention Ben oh, Finfling really? Fomp, yeah, from time to time. And other cats called Jewish things. We weren't even that Jewish. It's yeah. one of the things about, that people misunderstand about my family. Not even that Jewish, really. But nonetheless, we had cats called Ben Fimfling Fomp <laughs> and Schmendrick. And one called Hatsy oh, Potter. You had a cat called Schmendrick? Yeah, we did have a cat called Schmendrick, yeah. What brilliant yeah. names. But I love it. We had loads of cats, but we did, I believe, have one Which dog. Which way should we go, David? This way. Up this way, yeah. Actually, no, let's go... No, this way, yes. This okay. Way. I should say we're on Hampstead Heath. Um, but we did have a dog, who oh, I don't remember. Yeah, uh... And this was when you were really small? It's something... Oh, Dingle. Okay. That's it. Dingle. I know that because I was once asked for my pawn name. And my pawn name at that stage, because it seems to change, doesn't it? Yes. But my pawn name at that stage was being suggested that it was my first pet and the road that I grew up in. So it was Dingle Kendall. And I think Dingle is pretty good as a pawn name, but Kendall slightly lets the side down. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't it? I think he was a Jack Russell. Okay. Uh, and he once bit my older brother. Well, maybe that's why you didn't have him anymore. Yeah, maybe. Also, I can't imagine my parents, who were literally the most irresponsible parents in the history of parenting, looking after a dog. They hardly looked after us. Right. Did they? I mean, you've seen my show. Yeah. You will know that not a lot of actual parenting went off. Yeah. Because they well, were you were mainly... sort of self-parented, really, yeah. weren't you? Well, and by my brother, in fact. Yeah. Who was got over the dog bite to parent me. So when you were... I mean, we'll talk about your show, obviously, because I love your show, which is called My Family, Not the Sitcom. It is. I want you to, because you've got a history of doing these shows, you've got My Family, Not the Sitcom. Prior to that, you had Fame, Not the Musical. I did, but I think in the triptych... What's going to be the next one, Well, I was planning on a triptych. I was planning on a trilogy, uh, because I thought, oh, that'll be really clever and that'll brand me. And now I don't want to do a show with Not In It, just because the next show, I think, is going to be about trolls. Right. Uh, Because what what I have is a huge bank of funny and I think also interesting about how we live now material that I've built up over quite a long time now of having a policy towards trolls, which is the opposite of don't feed them. Uh, They're hecklers, therefore I will retweet what they say, just as a comedian you might repeat a heckle while you think of a put down, and then put them down, funnily. And that has led to some very funny stuff, but also some very interesting stuff. And I think there's there's a whole show in that, but I can't call it a not the. No, you can't call that. I'm going to call it How to Deal with Trolls. I think you should just mess with everyone's mind though and call it Hollyoaks, not the soap opera. <laughs> and it sort of doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I could do that. <laughs> or, or maybe nothing Street. to do with TV. Yeah. Because I've done the first one was Fame, not the musical. Then it was uh, My Family, not the sitcom. It should be yeah. something like yeah, so Mona least, Lisa, not the painting. Yeah, it should be good. some other art form. Yeah. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> 
Come on, Jimmy. So, um, Jimmy, Jimmy, come on, let's go for it. You know what I I'm thinking? Yeah, go on. What I'm saying, Jimmy. Yeah, go on. Car. Yes, I keep uh, thinking of as, Jimmy Carr. As I'm Carr going, as Jimmy, well. come on, Jimmy, Jimmy. All I'm thinking is I have Jimmy Carr on a hey, lead. Does that mean that Jimmy's in the Jimmy chair? You know, Frank has this idea about the chair. No, I don't. Well, know that. so the chair is basically if you have someone who's overweight in the public eye, that's the person you will right. always go to. They're the go-to reference point for yeah. fatness. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm the go-to reference point for Jew. You're the, you very much are in the, uh, the Jewish chair. I'm in the chair. Jew chair. I mean, that's partly because they're so Is few. Jimmy in the people named Jimmy chair? I think he is now. Well, there's the guy in cold feet. Jimmy Nesbitt. Oh yes, but you've then you called him the guy in cold feet. Well, it took me that's because I'm old and I forgot his name for a second. Shoe, who I know very little about. Is he a shoe person? Yeah, he right. makes shoes. Right. Jimmy the Greyhound, of course. We were probably. I think well, from our point of view, in our world, yes, Jimmy Carr is in the Jimmy chair. So I, I know you talk about this in your show, and obviously it's something I'm familiar with because I've known you quite a long time now. I would say. 20-something years? I don't know, it's a long time. I don't know when we first met. How come we don't remember? Well, I always say to Frank Skinner, it was around 1996. But we met? Yeah, I think, or maybe slightly earlier, 95, yeah. So, um, I obviously know, because I've known you a long time and I've seen your show, a lot about your childhood. And it is kind of endlessly fascinating. Yeah. But I'm trying to sort of, I didn't know you then, and I know that you I can't imagine up. that we would have known each no. other then. <laughs> well, you say that, but... Well, no, you were in North London. I was in North London. I just think of you in a more rarefied... Not that much more rarefied. I was still the poorest kid in the rich kids' school. Yeah. You I, know, I it's was... just that my family spent all their money on pate. <laughs> is what happened. For dogs, sort of. For, <laughs> just for themselves. For themselves, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is why we had no money, but <laughs> I, I think... I quite like the sound of it now, <laughs> now that you've said it. I think that I have this idea of you as being super clever and people kind of look at you now I think and think oh he was like Sacha Baron Cohen or he was from this rich Jewish middle-class family in North London and went to Haberdash's his private school and yeah. that's kind of not the story is no, it? It's not the story I mean I think some I think the people who are paying attention which is always the issue with fame to some extent I mean there's lots of issues with fame but one issue is you realize very quickly and my, my show Fame Not the Musical was to some extent about this that when you become well-known at all, there's a version of you out there that is not you, and what it is is simplified. It's a caricature because we know too many people. We're designed to know about seven people in our cave and environs, but we know hundreds of people, or we think we do, even the ones we haven't met, and for the brain to process who those people are, you have to reduce them. And for me, to some extent, it is actually it's complicated because I, because I've spent so much time trying to do different stuff. I think it, it's a number of different things. So some people totally still think, oh, he's a la-. like someone on Twitter said to me the other day when I was having some intellectual conversation. I followed you because I thought it'd all be about Chelsea and music. Yeah, <laughs> I was cross about that. Yeah. Uh, so that some people just think football lad still, and other people think yeah Jewish probably from some upper middle class family like the Corrins or the Freuds bohemian yeah. blah 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 and, and no because your dad worked for unilever yeah he was a middle manager uh, running a laboratory my dad wanted to be a scientist uh now has dementia still is a clever is man in, yeah my dad yeah. in a strange way i still see shards of intelligence in my dad but obviously neurologically he's f- but nonetheless i still see you could tell that he was he is or certainly was a man of cognitive ability but he wanted i think to be quite an eminent scientist. He did a PhD in biochemistry, wrote a couple of papers, all that, but ended up working for Unilever, which is a company that, at the time, mainly made kind of shampoos and deodorants, whatever. 
and was bored doing that. And then his laboratory got closed down and he was made redundant. He was out of work for three or four years, around about when I was 13, and then ended up selling dinky toys, which was his hobby, I say hobby, <laughs> at an antiques market called Gray's Antique Market in Bond Street, yeah. which is quite funny because my dad was always, I thought, the worst possible salesperson. Because you have to have a certain amount of charm and persuasion, do you know what I mean? Yeah, Flirtatiousness yeah, yeah. to sell something to somebody. And my dad is, I mean, let me tell you this story. Shall I tell you this story? Yeah. Uh, you may have wondered, you're the kind of person who may have wondered where it all went wrong for Michael Barrymore. Well, Michael Barrymore collects dinky toys. He would always tell me that whenever I bumped into him at things like the Comedy Awards in the 90s because he'd gone down to my dad's stall to buy dinky toys. But he stopped doing that and that's because my dad never used to watch telly except for football and stuff. And one day, he, Michael Barrow comes and buys some toys and as he leaves, or as he's gone, another bloke who works down in Grace Antiques Market says to yeah. my dad, do you know who that is? This is the sort of early 90s. And my dad says, no. He says, it's Michael Barrymore. He's off the telly. He does Strike It Lucky. And my dad thinks, all right. So he goes and watches Strike It Lucky. Three weeks later, Michael comes back. My dad says to him, oh, I watched your TV show. It was shit. Now, the point is, he's a very, very wealthy man. Yeah. Who my dad has chosen to alienate because yeah. he can't control his own cantankerousness. And do you think that was sort of a form of Tourette's, though, in some yeah. ways with your dad? Yes. That had possibly not been diagnosed or people didn't really understand about that. Well, that's very complicated, maybe. I mean, Tourette's itself is obviously a very complicated illness. Yeah. My dad was just a very, very sweary man who, had, who wasn't able or never chose in any way to hold back on his sweariness and aggression and yeah. all the rest of it. Not because my dad was abusive exactly in any kind of real way, but he's a bloke, incredibly male man, whose way of communicating, and certainly whose way of showing affection and comedy, is to swear at people. That's his primary thing. Your mum, mm. who obviously I met yeah. when she was still alive, and do you, was she the kind of, I mean, I always got the sense where she was such a, what people would have described as a character. Yeah. Such a character, yeah. your mum. She's an incredible character. Very hard to describe at some level, although one of the things I'm proud of about my family, not the sitcom, is that people who have never met my mother will say, oh, I really feel like I know your mother, and I think, you must do, because yeah. actually the version I paint in the show is true in a very extreme way. That's, yeah. that's what it is. It's very true, and it involves talking about my mother in the way that people don't normally talk about their mums, especially after they're dead, yeah. involving talking about how sexual she was, how she revelled in this affair that she had, how she turned her life over, some people will know this already, to golf and golf memorabilia because she had an affair with a golf memorabilia collector. And in a very my mum way, couldn't contain that. She was a very boundaryless woman, and she couldn't contain that as just the affair. Her whole life suddenly had to be about golf, and therefore our life. Yeah. She wrote five books about golf. She uh, ran her own business called Golfiana. She became a member of the British Golfiana Golf Membrilla Society, and then later chucked out of it following a scandal <laughs> involving some forged golf paintings. <laughs> So, David, we've got the hound of the basketballs coming up here. Look. I think Jimmy's OK. He's just got... I don't know. I mean, has Jimmy had, had some difficult moments in his life? I don't know. I have to ask that. I think he's... Because um... he looks a bit troubled now. Yeah, he looks a little bit scared. <laughs> a bit worried about the dogs, but... <laughs> God, that's really... Like, that's almost like a dog sound effect that we've created <laughs> off. That's like... Yeah, it really sounds, doesn't it? Like, 
Okay, can, we're not actually walking the dog, but can you just make that dog noise? Come on, Jimmy. <laughs> make that <laughs> very, very carry-on, off-mic dog noise. <laughs> Jimmy himself seems to make no noise. <laughs> but it's interesting you talking about this, David. I mean, on the stage, obviously, and to me here, because this is, you know, you're conscious about this is your way of dealing with it, isn't it? Because that is traumatic. I think there were aspects of your childhood which were quite upsetting in some ways. Yeah, loads. <laughs> loads, yeah. but I have, uh, you know, I sort of believe without wishing to be sort of, you know, too paint too rose-tinted a picture of comedy that the thing I've managed to do and I think is is helpful in general and it's sort of helpful in the moment with dementia is to say okay how is this funny and I don't mean that in a kind of oh yeah comedy is all about pain way I mean it in a more practical way which is I think if you can narrativize stuff that's happening to you that might be damaging and make it funny or just, tell, just make it into a story, which everyone does. That's what you're doing in therapy. To yeah. some extent, you are narrativising your own damage. That's what therapy is. Right. But if you can do it in a way that finds the comedy in it. I mean, I'll give you a very good example. When I was in therapy, my therapist, my main therapist, because I had quite a few, she would quite a lot want to talk about David White and my mum's affair and all that kind of stuff, as you might expect. But I made, said to her, look, the problem with this is I'm happy to talk about it, but I think what you want me to feel about it, which is sort of terrible pain and anguish so we can, I can cry and get through it, it's quite hard to do because it's about golf. Right. right? And right. the golf, the comedy of that, makes me unable to feel that pained about it. You know what I mean? Com right. Comedy, is a, for me, is a way yeah. of... It may be a deflection, but it's yeah. also a way of... It's like, I, like, if it's funny, I can't feel that much pain. Yeah. I understand that. Well, uh, do you think it anaesthetises the pain as well? So it becomes about something else. It's a distraction, essentially. Possibly, but also what you have to remember is you say things in your childhood were quite damaging. They were, but I'm 53. Mm. And all I can talk about about those things is how I feel about them now, really. I can't right. time travel. I'm not, you know, when I think about Doctor Who, I obviously just think of Frank Skinner and his strange late-life obsession with it. <laughs> uh, but I don't have an obsession with Doctor Who. I'm, I, I'm more interested in how you, know, you are now. And as I am now, I know that I can't think about my dad making walrus noises in bed or, indeed, something I talk about in the show, which is my mum shouting out the name of her lover while she was masturbating, which happens to be my name, because yeah. she chose not to say both names. If she said David White while she was orgasming, yeah. it would have been so much less confusing, but she chose just to shout David, <laughs> David, David three times. And that is confusing and damaging for the 12-year-old next yeah. door. Um, but I can't think of it really as anything else but funny. Not as nothing else but funny. I can see how it's all so shocking. And but when you were in it, so when you were... That 12-year-old. Yeah, that 12-year-old. Would you look back and say, oh, I was happy? I don't know. I don't think I had a very happy childhood, but I also didn't have a really awful, bleak childhood either. Mm. I had a childhood that was very idiosyncratic yeah. and certainly was sort of the opposite of, to some extent, what I've tried to create around my children and what most people in my generation, I think, have tried to create around their children, which is, you know, a very possibly over-protective, over-let's-make-sure-our-children-are-not-damaged let's change our lives for our, you know, children. My children didn't, my parents didn't in any way stop their lives. It's a very 1970s thing, I think, that like, you know, I don't know about your parents, who I think was quite 70s, yeah. but more glamorous than mine, but they just had these lives and they didn't think, oh, we have to change them, now we have children, yeah. which is totally what my generation... Well, it's that, it's that idea, isn't it, that now it's that sense, I think, that, you know, 
you become the frame and your kids become the picture. Yeah. Whereas my parents were always the picture. Always, yeah. And mine, I think that's probably too. similar to yours. Yeah, yeah. But not even with my parents. It's almost like it didn't occur to them yeah. that that might be the case. I mean, they were narcissistic people, but it wasn't like they were aggressively narcissistic people. Yeah. Like, um, I happened to have watched Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool yesterday on the BAFTA DVDs, which is about a woman called Gloria Graham, who's a kind of yeah. sub-Gloria Swanson figure, and the portrayal is of an sort of intensely narcissistic woman. My mum wasn't really like that, it's just it didn't occur to her that her own obsessions, her own life, her own sexuality or anything like that should change as a result of having children. I mean, to use an example, which I have talked about on stage, but I don't always talk about on stage because it's a bit too much for some people. So when I used to do a Q&A after the show, this bit would only be in that bit, is that when my mum shouted out David three times when she was masturbating and I was next door, what occurs to me most about that is if I, the very unlikely event, was having an affair now with a woman called Dolly. Dolly is my daughter. Yeah. It's all very unlikely that, but yeah. more unlikely is that when I was masturbating, I would shout out the name Dolly three times with my daughter next door and not think, no, wait a minute, I'll try and contain that impulse. You know, it's already quite bad, the situation I found myself in, but that is taking it slightly too far because she's next door. And my mum had always had a camera on herself in her own mind. Yeah. She was always someone who thought of, prim- some, was always acting some part greater than her Dolly's Hill life. Yeah. And, and did your two brothers, so you had Ivor and Dan. Dan, who now lives in New York. Yeah, he's a taxi driver in New well, York. Oh, he's not just a taxi driver. <laughs> well, he is, he is just a taxi driver, well, but yeah, he's also... there's something pretty he, special. Well, he's regularly now, I think he's been in four of them. I've seen this year. a participant, yeah, in the New York Cab Drivers Charity Calendar, which is a bit like the thing that happens in Calendar Girls, uh, which is a bunch of not particularly, well, certainly not as photogenic as those women, uh, not very photogenic men uh, who have chosen to strip off and be pictured near their cabs or in their cabs, in Dan's case, in the boot. <laughs> in one case, looking like he's been kidnapped, and another it's, time he's standing I, I on top of the I absolutely love it. Uh, and so, Dan, I should say, is, oh, is he? he's probably about 17 stone. But can I ask you, I've never, why did, so you and Ivor were brought up here, why does Dan in New York then? Well, he once told me it was to get away from me, from my fame, that he didn't like it. Really? But I, yeah, I don't think that's true. I think that's just something Dan said, because mm. uh, I don't think Dan quite knows his own mind sometimes. OK. So when you went to Cambridge, did you have a sense of... So actually, just before we yeah. get onto that, it yeah. does come back to what you were saying about how my childhood doesn't really fit into that idea of the sort of haute bourgeois yes. Jewish yeah. family. So, so we didn't have very much money. I got into haberdashers. My, like, like lots of immigrant families, what my parents were working on, especially my mum, was education. Right. Um, so was that really important to your parents? Well, again, it seems hard to imagine it because they sort of weren't bothered about us at some level, but they were bothered about education. Yeah. Like, like, we, like they were very bothered about seeing our reports and whatever. Uh, and it's interesting that. I think it's really interesting because I think now, when, when I read my children's books at, at schools, I notice that whatever the top schools are now, tend to have lots of Asian kids in them. And I think that's a thing with immigrant communities. And right. I would say with Asian communities, the sort of mechanics of the British class system don't get so involved. So I think if you're right. from an Asian family and you go to a, whatever a top school is, you don't get so quickly accused of, you know, class traitorship or whatever it might be accused. But that doesn't seem to apply with Jews. Like every other thing doesn't really apply with Jews. They're a strange special case. But my point is that... I went to Haberdashers, which is a private school, 
because at the time it had a direct really draft good school, system. Yeah. yeah, it is a good school, although I hated it. And pretended Did to be you? ill. Pretended to be ill for all, all, all of my second year and ended up in hospital. I didn't um, know that, David. Yeah, that's a little known fact about me. I pretended to be ill for six weeks. Uh, and this is a good example of how my parents were not proper parents. And do you think it was psychosomatic? Well, I, I think it began psychosomatic, but it couldn't have been that psychosomatic because, I was going to say, they used to, with my parents in a very 70s way, going to school was totally about whether or not you had a temperature. Right. And in fact, my brother went to school with appendicitis because he didn't have a temperature, right? So <laughs> my parents used to put the thermometer in my mouth, then always leave the room because they couldn't be bothered to hang around with me. I would then, I noticed with old thermometers, if you shake them upside down, your temperature goes up. So I'd do that, put it back in my right. mouth. So not that psychosomatic. <laughs> and they, they would come back and say, oh, he's got a temperature, he can't go back to school. And that went on for six weeks and I ended up in hospital where, of course, I couldn't do it. Right. And so they said, there's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> I had a lot. Of, I, the, I had a lot of gnat bites. Again, a very seventies thing. There were a lot of gnats, midges, in our garden, and I had a lot of them on my stomach. And I remember lots of doctors looking at that as if, like, maybe it's something to do with these. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was to do with shaking the thermometer. Anyway, <laughs> I went there because it was direct grant, and direct grant at the time was a scheme. I think it's set up by the Conservatives, uh, right. whereby you were means tested. Yeah. Your parents were means tested, and if your parents didn't have much, didn't have much money, yeah. but you were clever and passed the entrance exam, you would go to this school. So my parents paid something like 100 quid a year. Right, to send you there. To send yeah. me there. And then I went to Cambridge, which was free. I like, that's, that's one of the most ridiculous things, is this idea that Cambridge... I mean, obviously, well, some people who went to Cambridge yeah. could be posh, but the fact is it was free. I had a grant, and I was... Yeah, I was, what I was was clever. Yeah. And also, I went to Cambridge for a specific reason, which was... I didn't really know much about comedy, but was really interested in it. Right. Had, had done something at my school, uh, a, a review show, that had normally been terrible. And then when I'd done it, I'd changed all the sketches so they were about yeah. teachers I didn't like. And it stormed it. Yeah. And I nearly got expelled and was cool at school, very briefly. Wanted to go to Cambridge because I knew about Cambridge Footlights. Oh, you'd heard of that, yeah. I'd heard of that. And I, and I was Monty obsessed Python with Peter Cook yeah. and Monty Python and stuff like that. That was the wrong thing to do because it was the 80s and Footlights was the wrong place right. uh, to start in comedy in the mid-80s. It was the right place before that and actually pretty the right place after that when Mitchell and Webb and other people like that. Yeah. And people sort of started to be less bothered about. But you found your you found some pals there, didn't oh, no, you? Oh, no, no, I liked, yeah. I liked it and I certainly got a chance tr- to I do try, some comedy. I try and get a sense of you at Cambridge. I can't imagine what... You know, I sometimes see pictures of... People like Jimmy Carr, who would have been there slightly after you, I think, wouldn't he? But yeah, ten years after. I see Jimmy with this sort of curly hair and yeah. looking so studenty, and I and now. But have you ever seen a picture of me at Cambridge? No, I don't think I have. No, I had very, very extreme eighties hair. Did you? Yeah. The main thing. I, I looked like Robert Smith. Yes, that's what I was imagining. Yeah. I spent a lot of time backcombing. But you see, this is fascinating to me because I think this is quite a common thing with comics that, in some way, they were outliers when they were younger, so... I think it's clearly something to do with attention-seeking. You know, I mean, one doesn't go on stage unless one wants some kind of attention, and going with that when you're young would be dressing in a way that garners attention, I think. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what... You know, as a comic, did you have that sense, David? When was your first sense of, I'm funny? Like, was it with your family or with your friends? Or did you get that growing sense? Matt Lucas talked to me about how 
his he would do impressions of the teachers and that made him realize that oh this is a thing yeah this is something i can do did you yeah. have that well yes uh, but in a different way because matt is much more of a performative person than i am i mean like the opposite extreme to some extent in that you know what matt can do is transform himself into incredible characters and voices and all that stuff uh, what I can do is be myself in a very extreme way, right. in a way that most people can't on stage and in interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and and I'm obsessed with that. That's what I spend my whole life doing. Is the, yeah. is like having a, a horror of being anything else but <laughs> myself, which means I'm shit at accents or anything like that. I had these mates, Pete Smith and Dave Billington, and they used to make cassette tapes yeah. of themselves just talking to each other and doing ske sketches and yeah. they were really funny yeah. um, and I had a lot of mates like that none of whom have gone on to be comedians but just who were really funny people I went to this Jewish youth group called Habonim yeah. which is a socialist Zionist group uh, based on kibbutz and whatever but just my main sense of it was again lots of really funny people in it and my own kind of what I would consider to be kind of lower middle class North London Jewishness is something that I, I think I certainly wouldn't have known this at the time but I think there was a type of person who had a voice a, a comic voice right. that I was completely soaked in and yeah. that's what I've sort of done really that's my voice to some extent yeah I can see that I suppose when you go to university and you meet I guess like-minded people and you think I know from when I used to watch your first thing was Mary Whitehouse experience and it wasn't yeah. the first thing you ever did I suppose. No I'd been on the been... cabaret circuit for five years <laughs> by the time that happened but yes no but that's important because I think people you know I wish you to sound defensive I think people no. thought I came out of Cambridge and got a yeah. radio show and then a TV show no I've yeah. been doing the comedy store for five years. Right but that's interesting to me because that was my first encounter with you and what was that, sort of early 90s, mid-90s? It was a radio show, Mary Watts Experience, on Radio 1 from about 1988. Yeah. It had loads of series packed into sort of two years on the radio. Uh, and then the pilot on TV was 1990. And then the first But I looked at that and I thought, oh, this is like, they're like me. This is yeah. like how my friends talk. Yeah, and yeah I think that's true. I, when I, think, I, I mean, I think that's... I'll be honest with you, I think that's mainly me. Because I think when you look back at Ray Rice's experience, or you know, whatever Punt and Dennis or Rob Newman were doing, which was all really funny, I think the person who you probably thought, oh, wait a minute, this is sort of the, like, the comic voice of me, yeah. is me. Because yeah. like, Rob Newman was doing like, crazy weird stuff, Punt yes. and Dennis were doing sketches. Yeah. I'm the one who you think, like, oh, hang on, <laughs> that's a bloke who could live next door to me. I mean, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I think that's true, yeah. And I think that's what created some animosities with me as well. Putting people's backs up by being arrogant or whatever yeah. it might have been. There was also an element of, no, wait a minute, I could do this. I think journalists really think like, he's yeah. too like people I might know. He's not <laughs> like Vic Reeves, who's like a, an alien outlier weirdo yeah. and brilliant or whatever. But he's sort of, you know, isn't he, surely I could be doing it, you know what I mean? And I think that, I think that he's created... He's too like a bloke who, should, who could be writing for the guards. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or, and, and just was at my school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, it's very difficult, or not difficult, I, I mean, I can do it, but it's an unusual thing to... Oh, that's my phone. That's your phone. To, to we can get it on the podcast. I can get it. who it is. Obviously, we'll take it out if it's something... Okay. Uh, it's my brother. Why don't you get so it? I will get it. Hello. Hello, Ivor. Yeah, hello, how are you? 
I want to just check some things with you because I'm doing a podcast at the moment where uh, with Emily Dean. I don't know if you know Emily Dean, really. You know Hi, Emily Dean? Uh... <laughs> Emily Dean. <laughs> yeah, she's on Frank's show. That's right. That's right. I wouldn't call her a sidekick. Um, <laughs> no, I'd say she's integral. Uh, but anyway, she does a podcast. Co-presenter, exactly. Uh, it does a podcast about dogs, about walking dogs. Uh, and I'm presently walking w- with a lovely dog called Jimmy and her. But yeah, you just said it. I, I said earlier that our only dog was, Dink, was called Dingle. That's correct, isn't it? bit either under the arm because it's all come true as ever truth at the centre of my being is having confirmed I didn't ask him to do this and he was a Jack Russell <laughs> you're not sure <laughs> no one's going to be able to prove it otherwise no that's true definitely not alright i got to go Ive because I'm right in the middle of doing this alright talk to you later bye Ivor. bye that's my brother sorry but it's good that, that he confirmed fantastic. the dog story. That was great yeah. that he confirmed the dog. And I like that you did that quite our mum's thing of saying, that was my brother. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. I was also totally aware in a kind of, uh, what's, the, what's his name again? Oh, I so worry about my memory from this point of view. No, I, I do as well. Uh, who's the very famous American comedian who just, just does Seinfeld? phone calls? No, oh, no um, just does phone calls. Like He's from the 50s. But my point is that, like him... Yeah. I knew exactly what I was doing when I said, <laughs> no, I wouldn't call her a sidekick. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I know, I thought there was a certain amount of that going, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so when you became, that's when you became famous, and I know this is another subject, as well as your family, that you've examined yeah, and talked fame, about a musical. lot, yeah. is being famous. And how, how did that first feel? Were you sort of conscious of your life changing and feeling different or other people being different towards you and... Was it an experience that you enjoyed initially? Yeah. Well, there's a number of things. Here's the key thing with me and fame, I think, which is I don't think fame changed me at all. I really liked it because it meant, you know, uh, that I could do things like, for example, the first time I probably noticed it. Which way should we go, David? I don't uh, well, know that, where we are. that will lead us back to my house. No, uh, I'm not ready yet. Okay, well, then we can you. go up there. Okay, yeah. Okay, so if you turn right, we'll just carry on up towards Parliament Hill. You knew what you were doing. I thought we were wandering aimlessly. No, no, I know what I'm doing. You really knew. <laughs> this is my patch. <laughs> uh, I, so it meant the first time I really noticed it is, I think we'd done one series of Mary Whitehouse Experience, and me and Rob Newman were doing a, a stand-up gig. I think the first one that we did after Mary Whitehouse Experience had had one series on TV. And both me and him had regularly been doing cabaret circuit gigs at that point, club gigs. Yeah. And we do this venue called The Venue in New Cross, which I think is like a 900-seater. And I sort of hadn't occurred to me. It just hadn't occurred to me what might happen. Mm. And we turn up, there's people queuing around the block. Like, we double sell it out, and and people can't get in. And that, A, was sort of amazing, but also... It's quite a good example of how I'm slightly on the spectrum with that because I sort of do things without thinking about what the impact of them might be. It's part of, you know the way that I talk. Yes. You know, it's like I haven't really thought, okay, this might have like quite a strange impact on people telling them this stuff. Yeah. I hadn't really occurred to me, oh, I'm on the telly. That means people will want to buy tickets. And, 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 they don't, and to be honest with you, they don't always. People can be on telly for many years and not really parlay that into selling tickets. But me and Rob really did. So I liked all that, but I I really don't think, and this is partly to do with what I'm going on about quite a lot on this podcast with me, typically for me quite a wearisome way, (laughs) which is the meanness of me, which is that I think of myself as, as I say, quite weary, wearingly me. I'm sort of like, you know, T.S. Eliot says in the love song of J.L. Alfred Prufrock, 
that he creates a face to meet the faces that he meets or says that everyone does that. I don't do it. I don't think I do it. I, I never change who I am in any situation. I find the idea of changing who I am really uncomfortable and problematic. The only thing that has changed me, I think, deeply and psychically as a person is having children. That's yeah. changed me quite a lot. Yeah. But fame, I don't think changed me at all. I think I am like Larry David in that respect without wishing to claim the same status as a comedian as Larry David. I heard Jerry Seinfeld once say this is a bloke about him who's gone from playing tiny, tiny clubs to having a you know, syndicated show on yeah. American TV and earning loads and loads all the rest of it, but hasn't changed at all. And you can see that's true about Larry David. Yes. I think it's true about me as well. But I liked it until I didn't like it. And when <laughs> did you not like it? I didn't like it. I didn't when... get the sense when you did that, you know, which, which was at that point the peak of your career, when you did the Wembley Arena gig. I didn't get the sense that you were particularly happy then. I wasn't happy then, but that was to do, you know, I mean, again, I'm not sure this is to do with fame. Fame amplifies and toxifies a situation that you're in if it's difficult. So right. I was in a very difficult situation with Rob Newman then, where we were not speaking, only speaking on stage, like Sam and Dave, the soul stars, who I don't Did know. Did they you know. not speak? Yeah, they had to have really? separate uh, tunnels constructed really? to a stage so they didn't even see each other except when they were on stage. But me and Rob were not very far from that. And why did that happen with you and Rob, do you think? Rob became obsessed with billing, mainly. Right. Rob, who I think, Rob, who I think, I, I think I was incredibly talented, at, certainly when I worked with him, and funny and like kind of a genius, really, was very insecure. And I think because he was beautiful, which he really was, and I was the kind of more rather more bookish, less beautiful, glasses-wearing one, he started to become incredibly worried once he became famous that people would think, oh, he's the genius. David, people think David's the genius and I'm just the himbo. And so thus, he would suddenly insist that we had to be called Newman and Badil when we were previously called Badil and Newman. Right. Frank Skinner tells a story of the copy, just as I was starting to get friendly with Frank, the copy coming through for the first Newman and Badil VHS and sitting with us at an Amnesty International gig and Rob going through every single Badil and Newman and changing it to Newman and Badil and be just looking a bit depressed. <laughs> I wasn't that bothered about it at first, but then it became like yeah. Rob insisting on standing on whatever the right side is is it the left hand side in every photo oh, coming in first <laughs> yeah coming in first in any sketch like stuff like that and then getting just really angry with me yeah uh, one particular occasion because that again in terms of what i said before about me not really censoring myself yeah uh, he would then rob as part of rob's i have to be you know this person within yeah. this relationship he started saying i want to be interviewed by myself now he made a mistake there because because of my truth jag journalists would then interview me by myself and say what's what's how's it going and i would say oh, right. i think he's gone mad right, right, and then he right. would get furious yeah yeah so and obviously i shouldn't have said that i agree i shouldn't have said that i should have found another way of you know expressing myself there and that was a mistake yeah. um and he's right to be angry with me but anyway it would lead to terrible rows and then there was one particular row i think i did have talked about this once before where we hadn't spoken for about three or four days um and we were on stage at leicester de montfort hall which i think is a four thousand seater arena I'm, something like that actually maybe not that big sort yeah. of th but a big place and I had done a bit of new material because we we were never a proper double act I basically did some stand-up Rob did some stand-up and then we would come together to do history today and a couple of other sketches yeah. so I did some new stand-up and then I did a joke about the IRA and the fact that at the time Margaret Thatcher god this is how long ago this was <laughs> had insisted on them not being allowed to speak normally on telly and I did a joke about that I can't remember the joke but it transpired that Rob 
had put a joke in into his set later in the second half about the same thing, but I didn't know that. So I'm doing the end of my 20-minute stand-up yeah. bit at the top of the show. I come off, and Robbie's dressed as Jarvis, who you may remember is a kind of lounge lizard, sex-obsessed aristocrat character he used to do. Right, OK. And he's dressed as Jarvis, waiting to go on and do Jarvis. We haven't spoken in three or four days, and he says... Off, just off stage, just off stage, with all these people watching, you you fucking, you knew that was a bit of material that I do. You fucking did that to me. You fucking, and that's the first time we speak in three or four days. Right. And then I, I remember it in the interval. I'm so angry about that. I go to his dressing room and call him a cunt for a nearly 20 minutes solid. And um, <laughs> and what you need to know is there's about five journalists with us at the time, right. all doing the new rock and roll think pieces huge feature pieces so this is not good this is all like this is this is a relationship falling apart in public and so i and rob decided we didn't want to do it anymore i mean i I was lucky because i'd already become friendly with frank and then you got to know frank and then and i mean i I didn't think of frank as someone who i would necessarily be working with that that was just luck with you after you were working together no he was living with you Frank was someone I met on the cabaret circuit, basically. I thought it was something involving a drive somewhere in an 80s car. There is a drive in an 80s car. <laughs> That's specific to Frank, okay. which I could tell you. Yeah. That wasn't a key, a key moment. Yeah. There, there are two key moments. Yeah. One is doing Jonglers, which is a club yeah. in, in Battersea together, kind of in 1989 or something, when we were both still on the cabaret circuit. Actually, it must have been 1990, of course. It was 1990 yeah. because we were watching the World Cup in the dressing room. Ireland, Egypt, and the Irish team at the time, Jack Charlton's team, were playing very negative football, but they were yeah. doing quite well, and I was complaining about that, because <laughs> I want, I like fancy Dan flash football. Yeah. Frank, of course, is very happy course. with very sort of purest, grim, defensive <laughs> football. Of course he is. And so we had, a, we had an argument about that, but we both ended up thinking, oh, he's all right, right. that bloke. You know, I think Frank even thought, of course, because from Frank's position, I am posh. Right. Frank, oh, he's a posh bloke, but he knows about football. How how, how weird. I would never <laughs> come across that before. And sort uh, of genuinely knows about football. Yeah, genuinely knows about football. Come on, you red. Yes, so genuinely. <laughs> That's because Frank's wrong that I'm posh. I'm lower middle class. Yeah. And obviously, low, particularly the Jewish lower middle class, has always been obsessed <laughs> with football. And then I also remember seeing him soon after that. And him saying, hello, Dave, always a pleasure. And that really moving me at the time, because it, at the time I was just starting to become really famous and most other comedians I'd got this element of sort of resentment and anger and rage from. And it was seemed just sort of like a, really a really lovely. nice thing to say. Yeah. And then, I mean, this seems amazing now, as I'd hardly met him at all, he was basically kicked out of his the flat that he was sharing with his girlfriend at the time and didn't have anywhere to live, couldn't go back to Birmingham because he'd also split up with, with his wife. And so I just offered him a room in my flat. My, my brother, the one that I've just spoken to, had recently gone a bit mental uh, and left the flat and bought a boat, not a proper boat, a tug on the Thames to live in. Uh, and so I had a free room in my flat and Frank came to live with me. And then we moved from there to another flat and then we were just living together for six years, 40 quid a week, yeah. he never put the rent up, despite <laughs> the fact that he became a massive TV star over that time. And this happened when he was living there? Yeah. 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 So... But that's what I think is so kind of touching in a way about your friendship with Frank, is the sort of odd couple thing. Mm. It is an odd couple thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is about comedy. It's just like, yeah. he's really funny. Yeah. I am funny. You know, we share a lot of jokes. And, and I suppose also a slight... If one was to be 
slightly self-regarding, a slight kind of muscularity that we th- we feel to each other about sort okay. of slight no-nonsenseness yeah, yeah, about yeah. other stuff. Come on, Jimmy. Jimmy, come on. And it's funny because when you first met Morwenna, which would have been what, late 90s? Uh... Come on, Jimmy. No, Jimmy. I knew I knew her before then. Uh, I certainly met her before then. I started seeing her towards the end of the 90s. Well, I remember you mentioning her, and it was quite, um, not under wraps, but yeah, I, well, I had this sense that's of it her. being... She probably, it's a very odd couple thing with me and Morwenna. Yeah. Because, you know, she is the opposite of me in terms of I basically like to tell everybody everything about my life, and she likes nobody to know about her life. Yeah, she's incredibly private, private isn't yeah. she? I mean, I think you're, you're a real extrovert yeah. in terms of I think you derive your energy source from other people yeah. and conversation. And yes, that's I get true. the impression with when, like going to a party, she'd rather... Oh, no, she doesn't like parties. No, no. no she, she doesn't like anything to do with I'd that. I'd say she's an introvert who yeah. performs. Yes. Yeah, well, she's very unusual. She's, I suppose there must be other people like this, but I've never come across anyone as introverted as Morwenna who is also... Goes on stage and does yeah. stuff in front of people, but she is a character performer. Well, when her is, you know, yes. not herself and on stage. And that's more common, like sort of Rowan Atkinson. Yes, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah also... she's not like Rowan Atkinson. I should stress. <laughs> not, no disrespect to Rowan, <laughs> no. but I think the idea of Morwenna being like Rowan Atkinson seems a bit weird. No, to me. I wasn't suggesting. <laughs> when, if you're listening, no, no. I'm not suggesting you in any way like Rowan Atkinson, no. either physically. Or on that note, I had. Um, my hairdresser, and I didn't. It was one of those situations where Can I, didn't I tell know you, what I'm to desperate say. to go to the lavatory. Okay, let's I'm find sort of looking around for a bush. I mean, my house might be nearer. Do you want to do that? We can go to my house. Well, I certainly do need to go to the loo. Okay. But we can carry on talking. It's not yeah. like I can't think. Well, let's go. For urine. We'll go back to you. <laughs> come on, Jimmy. Jimmy, come on. Are we going down this little alley? Yeah, this is the little alley that leads come to the house. Come on, Jimmy, we're going down the alley. Well, you would mentioned Rowan Atkinson earlier, and I just thought you <laughs> would enjoy this. Back to Rowan Atkinson, yeah. I don't want to keep going on about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. But what about Rowan Atkinson? Well, I think if you think this is strange. I wanted to run this past you. Okay. When I was at my hairdressers and I couldn't get my regular hairdresser. Yeah. And he said, "Well, we have got Lee." And I said, "Oh, I haven't had Lee before." He said, "Oh, Lee's amazing." So he said, "Well, look, I, I've got to be discreet here, but..." Would it be helpful to know that he does a Rowan Atkinson's hair? <laughs> 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 I don't want to look like Rowan no, Atkinson. No, that really isn't. But I mean, again, no disrespect to Rowan, if you're listening, but Emily obviously has full, lustrous, glamorous hair. You have in-style hair. Whereas <laughs> Rowan, Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson has he even got hair? Hair by Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> hair by Rowan Atkinson's hairdresser. No, you're right. I presume what they just imagined <laughs> is that you would want to know that he does some celebrities. Anyway, I'm but Let me tell you something. You are digressing. I'm going to carry on digressing. Yeah. Which is, I was um, with Simon Nye the other day, the writer, and his wife was telling me what about about know? some hairdresser, friends of yeah. friend of theirs, who's called something like some. I haven't got this name right, but it's something like Raffi or something like that. That's the name of, the, of this friend of theirs who's a hairdresser. Anyway, they told me that his hairdressing name was Julian. <laughs> I thought I've never heard of that before. That hairdressers have a hairdressing name, <laughs> and particularly you know one so comical. <laughs> but if it, like uh, you know, any hairdressers name. listening, if, if you do have like a hairdressing name, yeah, like a stage name. <laughs> so like, while I'm in the salon, could you call me Julian, please? Why is he? T- <laughs> <laughs> and what happens if someone forgets? Well, you know, apparently gets furious. <laughs> I imagine. That's <laughs> excellent. Wow. I have a very good hairdresser now. Well, because for years, all all I ever had was just was uh, 
the bloke around the corner who used to do the guy. Who's the bloke in George and Mildred? Is some uh, um, well, it was you for George. Everyone no, yeah, knows yeah, that. no, the man. And then he is called Brian. Right, yeah, Brian. Um, Brian Murphy. Murphy, yes. Yep. So, my hairdresser, also called Brian, uh, around the corner, used to do Brian Murphy's hair, and used to tell me about how he used to do summer seasons with Brian, go with him to Blackpool in the seventies, and get a lot of sex on the back of being Brian Murphy's hairdresser. I mean, that shows how powerful showbiz is, doesn't it? Um, but my point is that now. A man called Winston does my hair, right? And he's a bit he? more expensive. He's at Henry Higgins in um, Hampstead in Floss Walk, and I think he's—I finally found someone who can make my hair look like a haircut. <laughs> Why are you laughing so much, at Henry Higgins? <laughs> it's the fact. I tell you what, I'm laughing at David. It's the fact that you went to such to great pain to, tell you about to drop the Iggins, to drop the H from the Iggins, well, because you felt you didn't want to betray the integrity of the name they'd worked so hard no, That's true. So that is absolutely said, correct. Oh, I would have said it was called Henry Higgins. No, no, you went, Henry Iggins. <laughs> it's called Henry Higgins, though. They, they went to all the trouble of a sign writer with two apostrophes. So <laughs> I feel I have to are be there, true to that. And there no H's then? No, that's what it's called, Henry it's in Floss Walk. Have you never seen it? I know. I still think I would have reverted. Oh, I can, I can bring this all round. <laughs> hey, no, I'm so pleased about this. So, Winston, you probably won't, won't let me tell you this, but I stuck with him despite him doing something very peculiar once, which is mm. I'd booked him, something I never do with a hairdresser. Brian Murphy's mm. hairdresser used to wander in, right? <laughs> I'd actually booked him because I thought, oh, this bloke's really good. I arrive at Henry Higgins. <laughs> He's not there. He's disappeared. Henry Higgins? No, Winston. He's not there. And I, said, and I said to the woman, I said, where's Winston? She said, oh, I don't know, where's he gone? Uh, and then she calls Winston, right, on his mobile. Yeah. Winston's gone back, he lives in Brixton. He'd gone back to Brixton from Hampstead because someone had come into the shop with a dog that he was frightened of. And he was so yeah. frightened of this dog, he just he ran out of the shop and went home. <laughs> Isn't that weird? He sounds quite sensitive, well, Winston. hairdresser. I don't know what his hairdresser's oh, yes. name is. <laughs> Rowan, I think. <laughs> Right, we, we're going to say goodbye to the Dogs Trust people now. So nice to meet you and thank you for bringing lovely Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye, so Jimmy. Lovely to meet you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to rush in here for, yeah, for obvious reasons. Okay, so we should say we're going into David's house now, which is one of my favourite houses. It's beautiful. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is she going? Or maybe I locked her in. So we're back at home now. Yeah, we're back at home. Uh, and I have, here's his tiger. There's three cats. There's four here. cats live four. here. This is Pip, who is the mum of Tiger and another one called Ron. Ron has seven paws, seven fingers. They're all polydactyl, all Pip's relatives. She herself has got six. And I think Tiger's got six. They're polydactyls, which means they have more than five fingers or whatever the word is on, on oh, their right, paws. Okay. Which Ernest Ernest Hemingway only had polydactyl cats. He had loads. They That's are very really weird. I've only just seen. And Ron, that. who you have, who is not here, is incredible. Ron can open cupboards to get at food. We have put two child locks on the cupboard. He can still get there. He can break locks. But Tiger is an accident-prone cat. Now that is almost an oxymoron because yeah. they're meant to have nine lives, aren't they? Yeah. And one thing you would say is they're agile. 
they get out of trouble, cats, but he is continually just falling over, <laughs> banging his head. And one time he just broke his leg, we don't know why, and it cost me three grand. And I had to, he had to be in my study in a cage because he wasn't allowed to move too much. Uh, but he's very, very, very friendly. While we're talking about my pets, we have one other pet, which is a guinea pig who lives upstairs in a cage. And he is called Bjorn. Now, the reason he's called Bjorn is that originally we bought two, and the other one was called Benny. So it was quite a funny ABBA reference, but Benny died. And now we have this slightly odd thing of a guinea pig with this bleakly Scandinavian name. <laughs> like it's sort of a noir thing, Bjorn. Right? Uh, but it's only really upbeat with Benny, isn't it? But Benny's dead. Well, I've heard that as a piece of advice. People have said to me with dogs... Be careful about naming... Never name them anything like that. Don't do Bonnie and Clyde and go, don't go down the road because then Clyde on his own. Clyde on his own feels like a weird thing to call a dog. You know, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me when we, when we went for Benny and Bjorn. And actually, guinea pigs, you know, they die. That's the main thing they do, like goldfish. They and are, the guinea pigs, I mean, have they got much personality? No. Okay. No, what they do is die number one, and number two is run away right. because they think they're going to die. So it's uh, you, you, very difficult to stroke or interact with in any way. How long do they live generally? If they don't die, like early on, they live, I think their life expectancy without like, you know, having some kind of weird heart attack is three years, something like that. Right, okay. I mean, I quite like, I do like him, but it's not like having a character. They're, they're or here a for dog. a good time, not for a long time. Yeah. That's the guinea pigs. They're not really here for a good time. <laughs> they're here for a frightened, slightly incredibly boring time. Because they don't want to do anything except sit in their tiny little hutches and not come out. Yeah. Apart from lettuce. That doesn't sound like a good time to me. But in terms of, you know, I really do like animals. I've got this theory. Can I show you my theory? Yeah. Okay, so as time has gone on, I have become more and more convinced that, you know, one of the many myths handed down by religion is that, you know, we are special and the animals are less special and that therefore we can eat them and that simply clearly isn't true like animals are to a greater and lesser degree just incredibly sentient lots of them and just they just can't speak and stuff like that although they can well anyway the point is i think something is changing towards our attitude to animals and i don't think it's david attenborough i think i think it's youtube videos i think if you want to get something watched a lot more than anything else on YouTube, it's an animal doing something human. And I saw uh, this video, which got like 8 million views, of a gorilla playing in a bath, in a big tub, not like a little bath, like a big tub. And it was just enjoying itself. It wasn't being told to be like this by a human. It was splashing about. And it's like one of the most human things I've ever seen in my life. And I think things like that will gradually change people's attitude to animals. And they'll start thinking, oh, of course, animals... They're just versions of us with slightly different DNA. Yeah, yeah. And, and it may eventually change what I do think. I don't know if you've seen Simon Amstel's Carnage, but I think, I think Simon Amstel's Carnage is based on the idea that the mass slaughter of animals is basically a genocide, and in 100 years' time we'll realise that. And I think that's correct. So have you stopped eating... Do you no, eat of course meat? not, because I'm too yeah. weak-willed. Thank you, Although I try, to keep, I try to eat less meat... Like you've made us tea and you haven't gotten any, did you not? No, well that's partly because I went for such a long wee. I thought if I drink something else now, I may be pushing it. This is <laughs> lovely. So we're in David's beautiful house. But do you think how you've met someone, like I think you and when your relationship, I really respect your relationship and I look at your relationship as, yeah, I look at that and I think that's a good one. It <laughs> is a good one. And how and why do you think that is? 
<laughs> Let's see. Well, I don't know really, uh, apart from something really, really obvious, which is, and I don't, you know, one of the things about about me is I don't like to say things that are banal and obvious, because uh, then I just think like, what's the point? You may as well not say them. But yeah. the obvious thing is with me and Moina is we're very different people, but we share the same sense of humour. And the sense of humour in itself, I would say, reaches out as a node to other things to do with honesty, to do with approach to life yeah. in general. We talked about this before, GSOH. I mean, all, actually, I've only had three major relationships in my life, uh, you know, with women. I've only had two other big women, girlfriends that I've lived with for a long time and whatever. And all of them, I would say, were primarily about that. I remember in one of my very brief periods of singleness, I've hardly ever been single in my life, mm. being very keen on having sex with lots of people. And I was in a trailer with Frank, I think it was, uh, during the filming of Unplanned, uh, the titles for Unplanned. And we'd got quite a lot of dancers in, you may remember, for the titles of Unplanned. Uh, and two of these women were in with us and they were being quite nice and I thought, oh, maybe, and without it being in any way, Harvey yeah. Weinstein-ish, uh, there seemed to be a possibility of something that might happen with And as I say, I was convinced this is when I'm going to finally have lots of sex with lots of women in a kind of free and easy, uh, footloose and fancy free way. I'd say 20 minutes later, and this is no disrespect to those women, well, it is a bit of disrespect to those women, what can you do? Uh, after the, those women had made jokes that weren't funny, a series of jokes that weren't funny. And it became clear to me that I could no longer be in that trailer, certainly not long enough to create a situation in which sex might happen. So I left that trailer. Uh, I think, by the way, I don't think Frank did anything either. No. Uh, but the point about that story, it's quite an important story for me because it made me realise uh, uh, that this thing that I carry around with me uh, uh, and have carried around with me through various monogamous relationships of thinking, oh, but I want to have sex with lots of people, it is not as powerful as I cannot b pretend to laugh at a joke that isn't funny, which a lot of people have to do a lot of the time, I think, in order to just get on with their social life and certainly their sexual lives. Because mm. it would seem to me to be the case watching dating <laughs> stuff on the telly yeah. that that's what people do when they date a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, you might find someone mm. who shares your GSOH bang, yeah. but that seems quite unlikely. So, you know, the force of the sexual dynamic, which I, I think of as very powerful, turns out not to be as powerful as comedy for me. Right. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's, to answer your question, is I have never in the entire time that I have been with Morwenna Banks thought that's not funny why she said that. Yeah. And that's why we're together. Um, I need to, uh, well, I don't need to, but I want to talk to you a bit about the show as well, my family, uh, not the sitcom, because you've got a tour kind of ongoing right now. Starts on uh, January the 28th in Bath. Okay. Uh, and then goes on erratically a bit, but then really taking off properly in March till July. It's interesting, that show. I mean, obviously, it's done so well, and it was Olivier nominated. And I've heard you talking about that, saying it's strange that people see it as a play. You find yeah, that quite weird I when find you it in stand-up. People go away from it, and it does make you think about your own family. You know, that's, that's the kind of... Yeah. Yeah, the success of the I mean, show... the point is to laugh. That's not the point of no, it. No, 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 the point is to some extent... Yeah. Because you, know, you want to it's relate so as well. You want to yeah. relate, you only connect and all that stuff. And what the connecting point with My Family, Not the Sitcom, is that the very, very specific nature of, and idiosyncratic nature of my upbringing, in, you know, no one else has had a upbringing dominated by golf memorabilia 
eroticised by an affair uh, that, that their mum was very public about. That's very unusual. I, I mean, if anyone else has, please do write to me. But I think they would have done by now. But everyone has weird shit, weird stuff in their upbringing, especially if you grew up in the 70s. I think the show speaks more, maybe, to people of my generation from that, or you know, people between sort of 35 and 55 from that point of view. Although lots of young people have come, and lots of really old people as well, yeah. uh, and seem to relate to it as well. So I think that's just a truism. I think people, all, a lot of people have got family stuff that they probably don't think of as like something you could talk about and be funny, funny about. But you can, and I think that's what's liberating for people, as well as the stuff which we haven't really mentioned about my dad and his dementia, which is the other part of the show. Mm, mm. Still obviously family, but and still about memory, which is the show is something about memory and how you rem remember people. And does that get while your dad's, because obviously he's not great at the moment, no. I don't know how he's doing, but... The picture that I paint in the show is really of him as when he was first in the grip of dementia, mm. when he was very wild yeah. and kind of out there and sort of Tourette and whatever. He still is like that, but he's de physically more frail and, right. and so therefore quieter and slightly less likely to tell you to fuck off, although he still completely will do that. And as you may know, that's, for me, an absolute symbol of health yeah. for my dad. Not, yeah. of, not of overall mental health, but of generally of the, the fact of him still being... Yeah, Col still Colin, having his essence, essentially. Colin Baddiel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's still, he's still very truculent, very sweary, very grouchy, cantankerous and funny. He's just quieter. His, his short-term memory is worse. Do you talk to him about your mum ever? No, not anymore. Uh, occasionally, he he will remember who my mum was, but he it's difficult to engage my dad now in a long conversation about the past. Yeah. He will he will talk for about four or five sentences and then look a bit confused and then go oh fuck it or something like that. And also because you said that in the show, there is that difficult thing where you it's traumatic because you're having to relive that regularly with him essentially. Well, I don't do that well. That was. I don't say that in the show, actually, that's in the film. Oh, is that in the film? Yeah, yeah, in the Channel 4 documentary I did, The Trouble With Dad, I talk about the day that we told him that my mum died and how awful that was, and then having to yeah. tell him again, like, mm. 20 minutes later, and then yeah. again, and again, and again that day. I mean, that was unbelievably, like, being in a weird circle of hell. We need to talk about your books as well. You've become this incredibly successful children's author. I know, well, that's good. Uh, I'm glad about that. It's brilliant. I hadn't really expected that as a thing. Ezra, who you know, who is my son, and who at the time was about... He's 13 now, but I guess he was about nine. This came from an, an idea that he had. Ez Ezra's idea, Ezra said to me one day, why doesn't Harry Potter run away from the Dursleys and try and find some better parents? And I said, I don't know, although I, I do know, as it happens, which is, uh, which is that J.K. Rowling wants his life away from Hogwarts to be as horrible and mundane as possible, yeah. so that Hogwarts is a huge, magical escape. Mm. But anyway, I didn't say that. I said, I don't know, but that's given me an idea. Mm. And the idea was a world in which children can choose their own parents. And th yeah. that's another thing to do with... I feel I'm talking about myself a lot, but I suppose that's the point that's of this podcast. So another thing about me, Emily. <laughs> that's I, feel like, oh, I feel like I'm on Big Brother. You know, Big Brother. I people like always saying, in the chair. People are, yeah, people are always saying, I think about me is... Oh, yeah, that's the thing about you is you say... No, you think my about sister me always had a thing that she would say... Um, and I catch myself because of the memory of her whenever I do this. She said, if someone says, I mean, I have changed so much, right, yes. she would entirely yes. write them off as a person. And wouldn't have, and you know they wouldn't have done. <laughs> no, she, they wouldn't have changed at all. That's what you would know from that. 
But I noticed on Big Brother that yeah. people would always say, start sit, often on, on the smaller conversations where it's just the two people, mm. say, well, the thing about me is, and like, okay, this is someone who's not self-aware. <laughs> you know, but the thing about me is, uh, no, one of the things is that as a writer, I don't really accept the boundaries of form. Yeah. So I, I think the idea dictates the form. So if I have an idea about a Muslim who discovers that he was born a Jew, I think, oh, that sounds like a feel-good movie, body-swap mm. movie to me. So I wrote that. When I had the idea about a world in which children can uh, choose their own parents, I thought, that's a kid's book. Mm. And I hadn't ri written a kid's book before, but I'm a writer, so it doesn't matter, does it? Mm. I'm a storyteller. I, can, I, can, I know how to write a, w a book without any long words and without any swear words in yeah. it, but tells a good story. And so I, I wrote that, and it was very, very, very successful. I, I mean, Ezra's 13. He's only just 13. I would say he has almost exactly the same sense of humour as I do. I, I mean, he's possibly funnier. And uh, that's to do with him being brought up on The Simpsons rather than The yeah. Magic Roundabout. Do you think so? I mean, also by me and more winner. But then you would have been brought up on The Magic Roundabout. Yes. So well, yeah. So then that's what I find interesting. So where did you get yours well, from? from my dad, yeah. who's a very funny bloke, or certainly was a very funny bloke, for all the fact that he wasn't a great father in lots of ways. He's definitely funny. You know, I remember him watching, you know, Python and stuff like that. But then my brother, very key, Ivor, who Ivor, introduced me who to... Who we heard from earlier, yeah, because he um, interrupted yeah. the podcast with a yeah. phone call. Ivor, very key, introduced me to Derek and Clive. And, and we should say Ivor's actually a comedy writer. Comedy writer, very funny himself. Mm. And also, when I watch telly, I always think I'm so much like Ivor. I'm very interested in that in general, in, in second siblings who are, who are quite well known. So me and, much on a much bigger scale, Sasha Baron-Cohen... Like Sasha Baron Cohen is very like Aaron Baron Cohen, who I wrote a musical mm. with. I wrote a musical of the Infidel with yeah. Aaron Baron Cohen, who writes Sasha's music. But the main thing I noticed first of all when I started hanging out with Aaron is, oh, that's what that's the template. Sasha's, you know, got the template from you, and I got the template to some extent from Ivor, without any doubt. Like your older sibling is very important from that point of view, I think. Well, also, do you think as well? I think because I was the out of me and my sister, I was the kind of extrovert, I suppose. Yeah, she was older. So Yeah, she was older. So she was, people often say to me, God, you really sound like her, or there's yeah. something of you, but yeah. I suppose I was a slightly wilder, noisier version of her. Yeah, but that's, that's interesting, I think, that the sort of slightly more out there yeah, version yeah. of the Did original template. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, is that Aaron's shyer than Sasha. I'm, I was not shy exactly, but he's, you know, he's not as out there no, as extroverted like as me. Yeah. I, but I took that template and I put it, I made it more public. Yeah. You know, and that happens quite a lot, I think. We had the safety to do that because we had the template safe at home. Right. So I think that's why we could do that. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole other discussion. Yeah, 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 but I do think that as a culture, as a psychological culture to do with Freud, partly we get very obsessed not incorrectly, but most obsessed with the idea of parents and like, mm. oh, what did your parents do to make you who you are? But I think that siblings are incredibly important. Obviously, not everyone has siblings, but in my case, because my parents were neglectful, I was parented mainly by either. I'm mean, certainly, at a, when I was a little bit older, when I was from the age of about 10, when my parents particularly were sort of lost interest in being parents, Ivor was still cooking my breakfast, you know. Really? Yeah. Um, when I went to Haberdashers, I had to get up at 6.30, he, had, he, he went to the City of London, and so he got up same time as me, and my parents were just in bed. So Ivor would cook my breakfast. And, and we'll tell you, I think, were you to speak to him, that he still feels like slightly 
I need to keep an eye on David. Well, you have that thing with Ivor that my therapist said about me and my sister, which is why when she died, she said the sense of loss was so profound yeah. that because we were a little bit self-parented as yeah. well in a different but kind of similar way, if you get yeah. it. And she said it was... I think when you have parents like yours or like mine who yeah. are very of themselves, who don't need necessarily to like, engage with their children to be, yeah. you know, that the children don't aren't the thing that they need to make them bigger or whatever... They're then not one of those, my life's changed, it'll no, never exactly. be the same again. No, but it's like exactly. We had some then, kids. But then if you have a sibling, then, it, then it, yeah, I think, I'm sure that You is. become a sort of babes in the woods, yeah. is what I think. But that's more typical, I think, of people that they'll have a sibling and... It's like, oh, my brother or my sister somewhere over there. Whereas I would see you and Ivor as quite close. Yeah, we are very close. Yeah. Um, David, we need to wrap up the podcast because I will just stay here all day because okay. I love talking. But I've, And I'm glad that we went out with Jimmy the dog. Yeah. And I've loved, I've loved hanging out with the cats, but... I think he was a sweet dog. He was a really sweet dog. But I, um, I do, when I see a dog, I like to finish by, by saying, like my, when I go walking without a dog, I normally see about seven or eight dogs. I think, oh, I really would like to live with that dog. I mean, not like I'm going to nick any, don't worry, dog walkers. But I always think, oh, God, that's so sweet. So maybe I will get one. Well, David, as Frank Skinner once said to you, always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you loved that. I thought David was great. Rate, review and subscribe. And remember what happens at Doggy Daycare stays at Doggy Daycare. You don't want to know what my Shih Tzu and his pals get up to. I mean, it makes Wolf of Wall Street look like Valamori. 